Well, what a wonderful last week to have Alan Couchet with us and hear about his work in France and hear him bring the word to us. This morning, we return to the subject of sanctification. For three weeks prior to last week, we had been in the letter of 1 Peter. The letter of 1 Peter is primarily about sanctification, sanctification of the Christian. What's that mean? The word sanctify and the word holy in the Greek language is the same word. Sanctification is being made holy. We could say the holification, invent a new word, the holification of the individual, the holification of the church. In 1 Peter, we saw, thank you, in 1 Peter, we saw that heard Peter call us exiles, call us people, the, the, the church, individual Christians, the church as a whole, call us exiles living in this world. We're exiles, strangers, outliers in a culture that is hostile to God and hostile to his word. The next week, we ask the question, what drives us to this holiness? Peter speaks about that. He tells us, conduct yourselves with reverence, with holiness, throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile way of living by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. No more has been paid for anything in the universe than what was paid by God for you, for us. We look at the cross. And it presses us to holiness. I died for you. And then the next week, we ask the question, are we looking like our brother? Are we looking like our elder brother, Jesus Christ? Are we looking like our father? Is there a family resemblance? Because the father says to us there in 1 Peter, you be holy for I am holy. We have become partakers of the very nature of God by the power of his spirit. So that's where we are. This morning, we move to a different passage. We move out of 1 Peter to Galatians. Galatians 5, 16 to 25. And the title of the message is The Exile's Extraordinary Daily Life in Fayette County. Before we come to that subject, let's pray together and ask the Father who had Paul write this. Ask that Father. Paul's not here, but the Father is. Ask him to teach us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we fall before you as your priest. We've been busy this week out in the world. We have strived to Father, communicate your gospel to the world around us. We have wanted to be salt and light. In some way to be prophets to the world around us. Speaking your word 
not only through words that we say, but by our very lives. But now we're in your house. And we come before you not as prophets. We come before you as priests, bringing the world around us. Oh, Father, we don't just run down this list. We pray for these folks. They're real. You know them. You know their needs. We lay before you, Tom Edwards. We pray that, Father, these treatments would be successful and would heal him from this cancer. We pray for Sidney Wickens. Thank you for how her condition has improved. And we pray that you would completely take away this pain. Bless Tommy Pacello, Father. Uh, you know the needs of his life. We pray for healing, but Father, more than that, we pray that you would draw him close to yourself that he would know and see Jesus as his Savior, as his eternity. Bless Elise Atkins, Father, restore her completely. Restore the movement in her limbs. Take away the paralysis. Bless Billy Griggs, Father. Cause him to look forward with anticipation of glory. Bless Vicki Anderson, Father, and bring healing to her shoulder. Father, we pray for little Bella. You know her needs. And we pray that you would bring her comfort and we pray that you would give her protection. Bless Lucinda German, Father. Heal her from COVID. And we pray that the cancer treatments would be successful. Our Father, we pray that you would bless our hope. Give our children, give our grandchildren to Jesus Christ. Now we pray as we open your word that we will hear your voice. John Sartell is not able to preach so that it will make any difference in our lives, so that we'll be changed at the very core of our being or that we'll grow in Christ. Father, this is not empty rhetoric. It's the truth of your word. So once more we cast ourselves upon your grace and ask as children that you would teach us, Father, by the power of your spirit and for the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The Exiles, Extraordinary Life in Fayette County. Two lifestyles were described in the passage that we read this morning. One is an unholy, unsanctified, typical life in this world, typical in Fayette County. The second lifestyle of which we read is a holy, sanctified life that is not typical in this world, and it's not typical in Fayette County. This passage describes a cosmic war that goes on in the heart of every Christian. We read the foundational reasons for this epic battle in our words this morning. Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, 
enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I was talking to a professor of Western civilization who was not a believer, and we had been debating back and forth about the teachings of Scripture, about the very nature of man and what the very nature of man was like. And I would read him lists like that, and he would say, well, it's just not true. And then one day it hit me. He had the textbook that he taught, Western Civilization, and I walked over, he had it on a shelf, and I walked over and picked it up and brought it back and set it on his desk. And I said, read that. The very text that you teach proves it. And he conceded. Paul was describing a lifestyle, an everyday ungodly way of living. The person living that lifestyle does not have God at the center of every issue, does not have love of God at the center of every issue. That lifestyle begins with love of self. It produces arrogance, narcissism, jealousy, love of pleasure, sexual immorality, anger, and the list goes on. I thought about a young man this week. We had enjoyed a lunch together. He was a yuppie business person back when they were called that, yuppies. Today, he would be a Wealthy millennial. We had talked about Jesus and what it meant to follow Jesus. Just before I got out of his car in the church parking lot, he said, John, sometimes I really want to follow Christ, but I don't want to give up the way that I'm living right now. He fit the description. He fit the classical definition of a hedonist. He was saying, God is not at the center, and what's more, I don't want him at the center. I would have to change the way I live. You see, he was recognizing before the fact that to follow Jesus would put him in conflict, would put him in a battle with the present way that he was living. Right then, as things stood, there was no cosmic conflict going on in his life. He was quite happy with the way he was living. That's what he was saying. So how and when does this cosmic war begin in the heart of a Christian? What happened with Paul? How did this conflict come to Paul's life? Did he read God's word? Did he read God's law and start this internal War and he's so. No, no. Years before he became a Christian, years, decades before he became a Christian, he actually did read God's word. He actually did read God's law and thought he could reform his life in his own power. He became a, well, Paul became a walking billboard. You see, you don't see them much anymore, but a man standing on the street, he has a billboard on his front, a billboard on his back, advertising what well, he became, a walking billboard for a prideful, self-righteous, religious moralist. He thought he was better than those worldly Gentiles. He was certainly not a sinner who needed a savior. 
He was a prideful Pharisee who lived by the law and was righteous, self-righteous by his own efforts. So when did the conflict begin? You know when it began. On that road to Damascus, he hated Jesus. And suddenly, there was a bright light. And he was confronted by the Jesus whom he hated, whom he persecuted. He was not externally reformed that day. He was internally transformed. He went from being a hater of Jesus to being a lover of Jesus. He was born again. That's where sanctification begins. That's where the war begins. The war intensifies when the Holy Spirit not only changes our hearts, but he takes up residence in our lives. You see, there's a new voice of righteousness actively speaking into our lives, a voice that has not been there previously, a voice of a new heart, a voice of the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans 8.16 on your scripture sheet. The Spirit himself bears witness. He speaks to us. He bears witness with our spirit that what? We are the children of God. So what is this new alternative lifestyle? It is in direct conflict with our old way of living. This new lifestyle begins with God at the center of every point in space and time. No matter where we are in space and time. Whatever is before us, it begins, our thought, everything begins with the love of God. So the war begins with the Holy Spirit changing us at the very core of our being. It intensifies with the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. What did the old lifestyle produce? Notice, now the works of the flesh are evident. The NIV says there, the acts of the flesh. The acts of the flesh, the work of the flesh, what we're doing. Notice that it's plural. It's not singular. It's plural. Immorality. Sensuality. Sensuality means living for pleasure. You know, sometimes we look at these lists and we say, well, that, that, you know, that's, that's not me. That's not my friends. That's not the world. <laughs> really? Just look around. Immorality, sensuality, living for pleasure, idolatry, that's making gods that fit our own self-centered lifestyle, envy, jealousy, cliques, strife, drunkenness. Now, you may not, some of these may bother you more than others. You may look at one and say, well, you know, that, that really doesn't bother me. That's not where I am. You may not be prone to jealousy. Living for pleasure may be your major in this college of sin. As we look at our culture and our lives, the works of the flesh are expressed in many different ways. It's plural. However, notice this. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of being born again, the fruit of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you is not plural. Sometimes you'll hear people say they're, they're going to speak or they've just heard a message on the fruits 
of the Spirit. Don't you go out here today and tell people you heard a message on the fruits of the Spirit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It is the fruit. The fruit. You don't have a choice of fruits to choose from. I, you know, I'll do this thing with love. I'm, I'm not too much into this patience thing. It's one fruit. It's singular. That is present in your life. The fruit, the one fruit, includes all, includes love and joy and peace and patience. There's no such thing as the Holy Spirit only producing one or two of these things. The Holy Spirit will always be about producing the whole of the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness in our lives. Think about it this way. We've all seen apple trees. We've all seen orange trees. We've seen lemon trees, cherry trees, pear trees, grapefruit trees. What if you saw a tree, one tree, and that one tree produced at the same time apples, oranges, lemons, pears, cherries, cherries, and grapefruits? Those would not be the fruits of that tree. You see, they would be the fruit. That tree, it would be the fruit. You said, what's that tree? That's the fruit of that tree. Every tree like that produces those things. The fruit of the Spirit, one fruit, encapsulates love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is one huge fruit of the Spirit in our lives. What's the obvious question then as we look at the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Doesn't everyone born into this world have the ability to love, have the ability for joy, have the ability to know peace? Yes. Sometimes I've heard people pray and preach on this, ministers, and they'll actually say, well, the world really doesn't love. The world really doesn't know peace. All men are made in the image of God and thus have the ability to some degree to love, to know joy, to know peace, to know patience. So how do these characteristics make any difference in the life of the Christian? Because of the new heart, people. Because God puts something in us that the world doesn't have. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit that's present, that's taking up residence. That new heart, that Holy Spirit present in us, it enables us to take this love, to take this joy, to take this peace to a completely new level. Before my love, when to talk about my love started with self, the love of me and mine. But now, love, our love, where does your love start? Always. What's the apex? God is the love of my life. Anything that I face in any day, that's, I've, I've got to face. What does the love of God, how does it affect 
how I see this, what I do. Because of a new heart, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, this joy is now, it moves to a different level. Before, the joy depended on circumstances. But this kind of joy, I see that even on my worst days, even on my darkest days, I'm bathed in the grace of God. There's a joy that cannot be taken away. There's a question as we look at this, though. When Paul wants to change people from the works of the flesh, when he's contrasting these two lifestyles, why doesn't he just list the commandments? This used to bother me so much. When you read about immoral, you know, here was immorality, the immorality, the, the, the immoral part of this ungodly lifestyle. Well, why not put a commandment there that says do not commit adultery? Be faithful. Why didn't he just list the Ten Commandments? There's commandments that address each one of these things. Why didn't he give us the law? Do you see that? Here's this transgression after transgression after transgression. And he says, but the fruit of the law? No, he says the fruit of the Spirit. There's two reasons that I know of that Paul just didn't list the law. Paul had once done that as a very young man, a brilliant young man. He had done it for years and years. He knew the law, and he had gotten it all wrong. He had done that and had become a self-righteous, arrogant, religious sinner that was on his way to hell. The second reason. He had discovered that we're not born again by obedience to the law. You can take the law of God. Now, the law of God, I'm going to come back and preach another message and talk about how good the law of God is, even for Christians. It's important. But you can read this law. You can memorize this law. You can lay this law to your heart. And it's not going to change you. It's not going to cause you to be born again. That law has no power. The law of God in Scripture has no power to change your heart. Was I born again by the power of the law in my life? Ask yourself that question. Just as you were saved, you were justified, declared innocent by the cross of Christ and not by the law. Neither does the law change your heart. Paul is saying this cosmic war in our lives started in your life when the Holy Spirit changed your heart. Heart. An alternate voice, a voice of a new heart came to your life. The reborn heart and the Holy Spirit will produce fruit that will be in direct opposition to the works of the flesh. That's what it says here. We read it this morning. Look at it. Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit. That's capital S. Go back and read that again. Here's the battle. For the desires of the flesh that's still with us are against the Spirit. Capital S, the Holy Spirit. And the desires of the Holy Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. It can't be any plainer than that. In verse 19, look at the acts of the sinful nature. 
Many of those represent love gone astray. Sexual immorality is a godly love gone astray. Idolatry is a godly love gone astray. Hatred is an evil substitute for godly love. Selfish ambition is a godly love gone astray. Envy is godly love gone astray. The fruit of the Spirit speaks to that. This is why the writer said, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. He was saying that the fruit of the Spirit was the very opposite of the fruit of the sinful nature. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit, you know this, you've seen it. The Holy Spirit will take the fruit of the Spirit and speak to every aspect of our sinful lives. And that, as we talk about the fruit of the Spirit being love and joy and peace, it doesn't just address, say, the love of the fruit of the Spirit. It just doesn't address one little part of our sinful nature, of our acts. It addresses all of them. We're convicted. This transcendent love will permeate every aspect of the life of the Christian. Where sexual immorality is present, godly love will counteract. Where idolatry is present, godly love, a transcendent love, will counteract. Where hatred of enemies is present, godly love will counteract. When... <clears throat> when I first began to deal with this in my own life. Where did I apply? When I came to this through the Spirit's love, where did I apply that? I applied it to love my enemies. That was, that was just the hardest part of my relationship, to love someone that had opposed me, to love someone that I really did not like and that didn't like me. But you know what? If I just focused on that with this love, the, the love that's a part of the fruit of the Spirit, I could, I could love my enemies, but not necessarily love my wife or love my children. I can love my enemies and think that lets me off the hook. I can do that. This... This love addresses every part of our lives. It permeates every relationship. C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful book called The Great Divorce. It, it's hard to describe what the book is about. Uh, suffice it to say, there's this mother who is in purgatory. And she takes a trip from purgatory up to the very edge of heaven. Her nephew comes down to talk to her about leaving purgatory and coming to heaven. However, she's only interested in seeing her son. Her son is in heaven. She said she would love purgatory. If she only had her son there with her, she spoke of how much she loved her son. She loved him so much. But her nephew, Reginald, argues with her, and he tells her the truth. 
He said, your problem is not that you loved your son too much. You loved him too little. We sometimes say to a parent, she loves her child too much. She spoils her child. That's a wrong observation. She does not love her child enough. She loves the child too little if she spoils him. That's exactly what God says in his word. That we discipline our children. Why? Because we love them. When you love Jesus first, you, when you love your, you, you will love Jesus more than you do your children. You will actually love your children more. When I love Jesus first, above all else, that does not mean I love my wife less. Because I love Jesus first, I love my wife more. I love her with a better Love. That will permeate every part of our lives. I just want us to get this. Let me put it, let's come to Hebrews 13. Read this with me and understand it. Just look at it. Watch it as we read through it in your scripture sheet. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Now look how this becomes expansive. He just keeps spreading it out. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. God is not talking there to the church simply about the love of enemies. He's talking to his church about a supernatural love that permeates every aspect of a Christian's life. Every sentence there is about a godly, dynamic, extensive love. That is a transcendent love. Well, hang with me. This is important. I'm going to close and show you how important this is. This fruit of the Spirit. We must add one more qualifier, and it tells us how important it is. The fruit of the Spirit is not the same thing as the gifts of the Spirit. We must understand that as many groups in Christianity We've got to understand this because many groups in Christianity have emphasized the gifts of the Spirit over the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are not the heart of sanctification. It is the fruit of the Spirit that is the heart of sanctification. Sometimes the charismatics of the church emphasize the gifts of the Spirit over the fruit of the Spirit. They make much of the speaking in tongues and gifts of knowledge and healing. We'll close with 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Look at it and we'll be done. Now you are the body of Christ and each of you is a part of it. And in the church, and in the church God is appointed first of all, he starts talking about the gifts, apostles, prophets, 
teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. What are those greater gifts? And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak with the tongues, in other words, if I, if I have the gift of tongues, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. Paul was saying that the fruit of the Spirit is more important in our lives than the gifts of the Spirit. No one, no one has all the gifts of the Spirit, but all of us have every part of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is superior in that it's present in every Christian. The fruit of the Spirit is superior in that no one has all the gifts, but each person has the fruit of the Spirit. It's superior, the fruit of the Spirit is superior in that the gifts of the Spirit are powerless without the fruit of the Spirit. He said, You can have all these gifts, and it means nothing unless you have the fruit. Let me put it this way Wouldn't it be wonderful? I was thinking about this as an, wouldn't it be wonderful, I was coming to church this morning, as an illustration to this. Wouldn't it be wonderful if R.C. Sproul was back here and was in the pulpit this morning here? This place would be packed out. You know. Wouldn't it be great if Billy Graham were back here? They, these tremendous gifted men, God gave them a gift in preaching a gift in his word. Wouldn't it be something? That'd be. I would show up. But do you know what should excite us even more? That as we leave here this morning, as we leave here today, as the saints of God in this room leave here to go out into Fayette County, Christ exiles living in Fayette County will walk out those doors with the supernatural fruit of the Spirit. They will go out and walk through Fayette County with the fruit of the Spirit hour after hour, day after day. Amen.